Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Today's speaker, Rick Cresta, is a longtime member of Arlington Street Church. He's a clinical social worker specializing in work with court-involved adolescents. He's also a part-time faculty member at Boston University's School of Social Work. In addition, he provides consultation and training for several state and private agencies throughout the region. His passions include social justice, yoga, biking, and nature. Rick Cresta. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming indoors on such a beautiful day. Um, <clears throat> several years ago, I was traveling home after being away for two weeks. It was late February, and a storm had blanketed the East Coast. Many flights were canceled and delayed. This created palpable tension and frayed nerves all around the airport. After spending the whole day there, I was able to get on the last connecting flight. It was overbooked, and you know the kind of flight where there's not enough room in the overhead bends, and they take more time reorganizing them and forcing some people to check them. I was in the rear of the plane, seated next to a young Asian-American woman who looked to be returning from a business trip. We exchanged small talk, and I returned to my book. Seated directly in the row behind us was an Indian couple with a teenage son of about 17 or 18. Once we reached flying altitude, our seats began to rattle. The young man seated behind my neighbor was severely autistic. He was coloring on his tray with, which was attached to her seat back, <laughs> was attached to her seat back with forceful pounding strokes with his magic marker. The young woman was visibly agitated and looked to me to share her outrage at this disruption. Rolling her eyes and talking in loud, exasperated breaths, like that. After several minutes, she turned to the boy's parents and said, please get him to stop. The mother, who was likely great, very grateful that he was focused on this task, shrugged and said curtly, that's how he colors. A few moments later, he began a loud, inharmonious chant that went something like, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Scooby-Scooby-Doo, Scooby, you get the picture, right? And a lot louder than that. If it had a rhythm, it may have been possible to ignore over time, but that was not the case. I could only imagine how challenging it was for these parents to travel with their son, especially with the condescending stares and growing chorus of muttering condemnation. A wailing baby would have elicited more sympathy from this crowd. I also wondered if the negative response was magnified because they were seen as foreign. The mother was wearing a traditional Indian sarong and had a bindi that adorned her forehead. How's the volume? Good. But by far the most bothered was my, the young woman seated next to me. I offered to change seats so that at least some of the rattling would be minimized. 
She quickly took me up on my offer. His chanting, however, was still loud enough to drown out the noise of the jet engines. Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Scooby-Scooby-Doo. It went on for well over an hour at this point. She asked me, almost pleading, in what seemed like sheer desperation, how are you doing it? How are you doing it? Meaning not jumping out of my skin like she was and instead reading my book calmly. At the time, I did not know what to say to her, except you might try bringing your attention to something else. I know that's a little weak, but I didn't know. So, but I, in hindsight, I realize now that her reaction moved me in the opposite direction. It became abundantly clear that I did not want to share her frazzled state and that it was a choice that I could make. By focusing on compassion for this family, I could not simultaneously judge and be angry with them. About three hours into the flight, the chant stopped as suddenly as, as it had begun. Quiet filled the plane's cabin, and it was at night, so it was that eerie quiet. Then after five minutes of complete silence, Spider-Man, Spice by Spider-Man, 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 Spider-Man. And so it went for the remainder of the flight. Right? <laughs> Feeling like I had no other option, I chuckled lowly to myself. Needless to say, the young woman did not see any humor in this. Quite the opposite. She looked to have aged five years on this flight. She came on very prim and nightly, nicely dressed. By the end, her hair was all over the place, her makeup. She was totally transformed, but not in a good way. It turns out she needed my compassion as much as this Indian family did. When we replace judgment with compassion, it not only transforms us, but everyone around us. I am constantly working on being less judgmental. Mother Teresa said, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. Simple, maybe. Easy, no. Many of us, for many of us, it is our default mode. It happens automatically in our head whenever we make an observation and then immediately attach a value to it. I only became aware of how often I do this when I tried to stop. Think about the last time you passed an aggressive panhandler. What did you say in yourself, to yourself? Or the last time you were in a hurry and the person in front of you was moving slower than you would have liked, or someone cut you off while driving? If you're like me, your mind quickly started to assume some not-so-nice things about them. And it's not surprising that the greater the perceived difference in the other, the more harshly we tend to judge them. Our judgments may also take the form of thinking or telling, thinking or telling friends, family, or strangers alike how they could live their lives better. And it doesn't have to be out loud to count. Um, religious scholar Karen Armstrong says, the practice of compassion is central to every one of the major world's religions, but sometimes you would never know it. People don't even seem to know what compassion is. They imagine that it means feeling pity for someone. Whereas the root meaning of the, this Greco-Latin word is to feel with the other, realizing that at a profound, a very profound level, we share the same human predicament. This is crucial at a time when we are bound together politically, economically, and electronically as never before, and have really been more perilously divided. She goes on to say, it requires us to look in our own hearts, to discover what gives us pain, and refuse, under any circumstances whatsoever, to inflict that pain on anyone else. Religions also insist that it's not sufficient to confine compassion to your own group. You must have what the Chinese called Jian Ai, concern for everyone, honoring the stranger and loving your enemies. 
That is why it's the cornerstone of all religions. Without it, we are susceptible to tribalism, scapegoating, and violence. Compassion softens, then dissolves the barriers between us. It becomes more difficult to victim blame and support policies that ignore the structural forces that prevent people from flourishing and perpetuate needless suffering. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel, author of The Prophets, said each generation must renew their charge to form a community, to not be indifferent to suffering, impatient with cruelty and falsehood, and continually concerned for God and every man. He also notably said, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Recently, Pope Francis wrote in his encyclical on the environment, we are a single human family sharing a common home. In his namesake, St. Francis of Assisi instructs followers, where there is hatred, let us sow love. And did you know the compa that compassion is the most frequently occurring word in the Quran? You can Google it. Um, religions go to great lengths to encourage it. In science, in the science of neuroplasticity proves that we can train ourselves to be more compassionate, to replace it where judgment is now. Initially, we exert some effort, maybe a lot, and then doing it repeatedly over time, it happens automatically more naturally. It actually, the magic number is 21 days. If you do it 21 days consistently, then your brain is rewired. But most of us aren't that consistent. Um, the real challenge is to find compassion in situations where our inclination is to do otherwise. I'm going to read that again. The real challenge is to find compassion in situations where our inclination is to do otherwise. I wake up easily and then often have great difficulty falling back to sleep. Anyone share that? Yeah. Once awake, my mind starts obsessively planning my day. A few winters ago, it started at 4.30 a.m. A loud blaring horn outside my building. It wasn't a car alarm, that's a different story. This was the driver alerting someone that they were there to pick them up. However, in my mind, they were there to wake me up in a full two hours before I needed to be. Immediately, I began harsh judgments like, you bleep and bleep, it's church, so I'm <laughs> You are too lazy to get out and knock. I thought of opening the window and yelling out what I thought of them. One time I even envisioned throwing an egg at their windshield. True story. I didn't, but I thought of it. Of, of course, all this did was ensure that I was too wound up to fall back to sleep. This happened on and off for weeks, maybe months. And then I was reminded of Plato's quote, be kind for everyone that you meet is fighting a hard battle. Okay, I would try having compassion. It actually came pretty easily once I made this conscious effort to switch my perspective. Whoever this is, I thought, has to be up when it's still dark out and bitterly cold. They are likely going to a low-paying, difficult, and unfulfilling job. Once I thought this, the judgments faded, and I kid you not, the horn stopped. Well, I don't know if it actually stopped or I just stopped hearing it, um, but the lessons end once we have learned them. The lessons end once we have learned them. Of course, this shift in perspective has larger ramifications than my beauty rest. Judging others separates us or keeps us separate. Compassion brings us together. It is both healing in relationships and for society as a whole. There is even a large body of research demonstrating the health benefits for individuals who practice what is termed a compassionate lifestyle. Not surprising, we are more likely to be compassionate towards people who we relate to, identify with, or identify with more closely. For many, this group is shrinking. 
The group that includes them or those people instead of us is ever expanding. I remember during the Iraq war how much attention was paid to our soldiers' casualty rate reaching 3,000. It was so tragic for each of these young men and women and for all those who love them. However, during the same period of time, at least 100,000 Iraqi civilians had died. And there was virtually no mention of this anywhere. What kind of dehumanizing judgments were being made about them, the Iraqi people that, we, that prevented us from coming close to equating their lost lives to ours? Many media outlets foster this us versus them separation. Others, like NPR, try to be as neutral as possible. However, I was recently listening to one of their stories on gang violence, on the gang violence in Chicago. They featured a very sad story of a young man who was fatally shot at a social gathering. I don't recall all the details, but it was obvious that they chose to feature him over the dozen other young men who were killed that same weekend because he was seen as different. He was described by all who were interviewed as a good kid, a high academic achiever, a churchgoer who resisted gang involvement, thus worthy of our deepest sympathy. But what did it say implicitly about the others who were not mentioned by name? That they somehow deserved their fate because they joined a gang? I thought a lot about this in the subsequent days. I imagined their mothers and grandmothers gut-wrenching grief at their funerals but without the comforting words of fellow mourners who would say, he was a good kid, he didn't deserve this, he is with God now. All 13, all 13 of these young men's lives ended tragically, but the other 12 also lived tragically. The early lives that brought them to become gang involved were filled with trauma and loss from the start, so they too are worthy of our compassion, maybe even more so. If we replace judgment with compassion, it will change the way we view and treat one another. I recently saw the name of a woman who I knew when she was much younger in the newspaper's police log. It described her as a known prostitute. Reading this, I felt like I got punched in the stomach, even just saying it. Posting that in the newspaper using those two words to define her seemed worse than the actual arrest. Imagine if the system or our society viewed her instead as a girl who was exposed to, exposed to multiple traumas and forms of abuse and ultimately turned to drugs to try and cope. She became so addicted that she resorted to selling her body to support her habit. If more people saw this picture as the truth, maybe, maybe they would have offered her treatment instead of jail and public shaming. In closing, join me in trying to let go of judgment and replace it with compassion. When we view others as them instead of us, it divides us. As Unitarian Universalists, we use the metaphor of the interconnected web of all beings. In other traditions, you hear it called the human tapestry. In either case, strength comes from the unity and interconnectedness of each thread, each being. Any one missing weakens the whole. Whomever is your them, be it Jews, Muslims, Christians, Blacks, Latinos, Asians, immigrants, Tea Partiers, elitists, whomever. That is the group you need to find compassion for the most. Being progressive does not free us from this charge. Identify with your other. That is where your work is. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.